I think GPT-3 or, or these large language models, um, they are expensive toys, I think. They're expensive toys. Fun, but maybe not of very much use, in my opinion. Mm. There's a very rich amount of encoding and representation and processing in a spiking system that's just not used right now. To what extent can AI research or machine learning research inform us about brains? I think it can really help us understand the challenges and the problems brains face. What, they help us reflect back on ourselves and, wow, what can humans or animals actually do? Mm-hmm. And why is it so hard for these machines to do it? That is super valuable in my, in my opinion. This is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, it's Paul. My guest today is a friend of mine, actually, Patrick Laurent. I met Patrick in graduate school and always admired uh, his broad perspective and his depth of knowledge on a variety of topics. And as you'll hear, uh, that depth of knowledge came from a diverse background, and his neuroscience graduate school time was just one stop along what has continued to be a diverse uh, career path that he has taken. So I thought it would be interesting just to have him on and probe his broad perspective on neuroAI. And as you'll hear, he's worked on just a variety of projects also in industry. So this is more kind of a casual conversation, uh, but we do talk about some of the work that he published with his team using deep learning methods uh, with some neuroscience inspiration to help models better generalize in environments that are constantly changing. So this conversation didn't have a specific focus like most episodes do, and I appreciate Patrick being willing to go down that road with me. And we do jump around plenty, but I hope that you take away some helpful insights. I'll link to Patrick's information and the paper that we discuss in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 129. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. So I've known you, Patrick, uh, for, for well, I don't know if many is the right word, but uh, since graduate school, what was that, 50, 60 years ago? Right, about that. <laughs> I, uh, I figure there are two types of graduate students. Uh-huh. Uh, those that come in super green, like me, uh, and you know, this is their first time learning some of the, you know, the materials and without a uh, necessarily advantageous background. And then I always uh, admired you because you're the other type of graduate student uh, who seems to already have their act together who uh, seems like this is step number 12 in their trajectory, right? Uh, because what I, what I didn't appreciate is how much uh, software development and machine learning background that you had coming into uh, graduate school. And of course, you were learning new things. How would you summarize your uh, graduate school and your academic experience from graduate school through postdoc? I know that's a large question, but I know that you also you faced uh, some challenges along the way as well. As well, sure, absolutely, sure. Um, yes, i I think I think I did come in the door with certain ideas because I had a fairly good undergraduate research experience um, that started kind of in, kind of in my first year, actually. Well, that's when you got into neural networks, or when you started really getting. It was actually back in high school, right? Is when you uh, it, came across. Yeah, high school it. is when I first started reading about them for some. Yeah, you're right. And in high school, I first started reading about them for some uh, 
science fair project type stuff and some hobby projects. And, uh, but it was only in, in undergraduate that I joined a lab that was doing spiking neural networks research, um, to understand hippocampal function. And that, that came with doing a class on machine learning, essentially. Uh, we didn't really use that term as much, but it was the theory of neural networks and application of neural networks to mm-hmm. certain kinds of problems. So that was the start of my, uh, of my exposure. And then, right, graduate school. Yes, I did also learn a lot there. For example, I had not been exposed to reinforcement learning until graduate school. And mm-hmm. so that okay. was, that was cool. Um, so learned more methods and techniques did essentially and, and learned about ways other, other brain regions and uh, how thinking more on the brain scale than on a brain region scale. I think mm. that was a big part of, of my graduate school experience, right? Your development as a scientist. A lot of development as a scientist, for sure. Um, learning to enjoy the grant writing process, which <laughs> fortunately I never uh, ended up submitting many grants and getting rejected, uh, as right? Therefore, I didn't get all the rejections. So in my mind, Writing grants is still a positive experience. Fun, I don't yeah, know about. Yeah. about oh, good. Our- <laughs> this one's going to get a lot of funding. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I, I think there are definitely challenges with getting getting your research program going and doing all the networking and socializing of your ideas. Um, that's there's a whole other part of the science process that I did not recognize at the time. That is important also for your career development. Um, of course, you know, had awesome chats with people like you and, and others and, and stuff, but, um, there's always more you can do there too, other than just, you know, designing hypotheses and, and evaluating them. There's a lot more to science life than, than just that. So learning that was really good as well. But, and then you went on after your postdoc to work for multiple, uh, companies. And, um, so, you know, you were able to use, so first of all, uh, you you were like always into computers, right? So you were an early Mac. What's what was the early Mac uh, system that you had that you are, are fond of? Was it? Um, I don't even Commodore sixty four. Is that a word? Oh, yes. Is that a com, com, that is a that is a thing. Yeah, that's pre pre Mac. The Commodore sixty four was okay. Yeah, my entree. That's right into that, and then uh, old IBM machines. Yeah. So from a very young age, I, I started working with computers, but I think that drove me. To, to, to learn what else was out there, right? And I think that's how I got into sort of neural networks and machine learning, right? It's, it's not just about programming. There's other stuff out there. Yes. Yeah. I feel like that was cheating. I feel like people like you who were into computers and programming, uh, like I'm, I'm trying to get my kids a little, there are some games where, uh, it teaches you program, like sort of the tenets of programming. Uh, they're not very fun though. And, um, and I don't even, I don't even enjoy playing them, (laughs) but you know, so when they ask me to play them, uh, sometimes I I uh, I pass. <laughs> what what was your what was your first job ever? Do you remember? Of course wow. you remember. Like making money. I think my first job ever was. I think it was in high school. Well, actually, unofficially, I had a I did have an unofficial job, which was my, my dad's company, my, my dad's office where he worked. They had a large number of computers, and so I would often go in and like either update them or, you know, upgrade their operating system, or if, if they needed a little repair, I would do kind of stuff. I would do things like this. Right. So that was my unofficial job. But my first official job was, uh, uh, actually assembling 
making working computers out of broken broken computers, right? So I, 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 you know, here's a room full of broken computers. Can you get all the working parts and assemble functioning computers, the best functioning computers you could out of those? That was my first, yeah. See, to highlight the difference in our backgrounds, my first job unofficially was a little lawn mowing company in our neighborhood growing up. But then, but then my first official job, of course, was bagging groceries, a little different. I was assembling the groceries uh, (laughs) into the bags. Um, optimizing their fit in the bags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed that that art is lost, uh, on grocery baggers these days, but, <laughs> but you, you, uh, my point is that you have had this diverse background, um, w- you know, with software develop- development, getting interested in, in neural networks and going into neuroscience since then working, uh, for various, uh, diverse companies with all sorts of different projects. Is that diversity something um, that someone should strive for? Do you think that it, uh, how do you think it benefited you? I think having the diversity of experience. So I, I have worked in publishing companies, healthcare companies, robotics companies, home, I said home and consumer electronics companies. And then most recently, um, my work has been split across real estate finance, another publishing company, and education. And uh, I guess those are the main three sectors. So it is a quite diverse, diverse sector. I think what I've taken away from that diversity is how important it is to understand or formulate the problem that needs to be solved. If you can, it's really, really important to, to be able to clearly express what is the problem. That's more of an industry skill, isn't it? That, um, trying to solve problems. It, it could be. It could be. I think it's, it's also relevant for academic and research settings because it's, it's more than formulating the hypothesis. It's understanding what is the, system or framework in which that hypothesis is being asked, right? You can always make a hypothesis, but how is that going to inform you about the the problem of, say, understanding X, right? And I, I guess we'll talk about the problem of understanding what the brain is doing, for example, or what intelligence is, mm-hmm. I, I think, or consciousness is even one that I probably don't want to get into. But no, no, well, <laughs> I think formulating that, formulating what it is you're talking about, or or what it is you really want to learn, I think is, is, is key. How, do you think it's hindered you at all? Because some might look at that track record, that trajectory and think, well, it's too scattered. It's too all over the place. I totally expect that. And I, that's something I've encountered throughout my career, even as an undergraduate. Oh. <laughs> um, I did have that cross interdisciplinary major cognitive science that had just been introduced at my university. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my academic advisor would just sort of stare at me across the desk and be like, why, why are you taking all these different random classes? So I think if you're going to be interdisciplinary and going to be comfortable with jumping between fields, yeah, you'll benefit from it because you'll get a, a broader outlook. You'll transfer knowledge across these fields and see solutions that others who've been in that field might not see. I definitely have seen, you know, that's definitely happened. At the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, there are people who, who, you know, talk to me and they're like, Oh, you actually code, you know, for example, you actually write, write code. And I'm like, I write a code every day. Like, but they, they, they can't fathom it because their view of me is, is quite different based on what they've seen. I, I see and I do, for example. Right. Um, yeah. 
aside from others' opinions of you, do you think that has hindered you in other ways that um, that maybe you have not been able to go as deep on some things as you'd like and or focus for longer periods on very specific projects. I'm sorry I'm asking these things. A large part of yes. the brain-inspired uh, audience is actually, you know, either thinking about going to grad school and or um, re- like retired folks or people who've been working their whole lives and are just have been peripherally interested in this and are getting into it more and thinking about how they could get it, get into it more, et cetera. Yes. Um, you know, surely being able to focus deeply on a particular subject exclusively has tremendous value. And actually that was probably the greatest thing about the PhD program is that you had more or less that ability to, to focus. Um, and so I really do appreciate that. And you can get lots of deep insights by doing that. But I think you can also get insights from that broader outlook and that cross-pollination kind of cross-field approach. You can get insights from both is, is what I'm saying. And so what is it? There's a is T-shaped oh, individuals. Yeah, yeah, Have yeah. you heard this term? Right there. They go very deep in one thing. They're an expert in one thing. And then they have like sort of a broader experience. Um, they're eye-shaped people who are just extreme, really focused yeah. experts. Right. And then I think what has happened to me, you know, just, you know, just by, by circumstance, I've become a comb shaped person, right? I've got several deep areas. Um, that's the, that's the thing to aspire to, right? I, I feel like that, that is a goal. Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, I think that depending on your personality too, eye shaped could be very, very good for, for a person, um, to have that exclusive focus. And then you become the person that I, I come to. And say, hey, you know, I I know you know about this. You know, can you help me? Right. So, having that mixture is the, is one of the greatest things. That's the great thing about working at a company with a good a good crew of talent is that there will have both. You'll have a lot of a lot of eye shaped people who love nothing better than to focus on something, and then as long as you know where they are and you know that you can find them, uh, you can leverage them. You know, and and they can help you and and. Uh, if you're going to be like me, you're going to have to understand the limits of your own capabilities, mm. knowledge, etc. Right. And then, but I do appreciate sometimes just digging in and focusing on something intensely. Is there room for uh, illegible scribbled shape people? <laughs> because that's what I think. That's what I, when I look in the mirror, that's what I see is just a big scribble, really? you know? One of, well, yes, I, th- I think so. I'll, I'll tell you what I think that role is. Okay. I think it's, it's this role. There's a, there's a, a researcher named Alan Kay and he, mm-hmm. he uses, he calls himself in some cases the agitator, like chief ad- agitator officer sure. or things like this, right? It's someone who's going to inspire people to, to do what they, sh- what they should know they should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, to do better. And I've met several of these throughout my career. Agitators are, are, are great, right? Um, they, they connect distant dots together for you, help you see the bigger picture. I think, I think that's a supremely useful role. Um, so that's my, my answer for the scribbly. All right. Well, that, that's, that's a very optimistic answer. Yeah. And one that, uh, I, I think I fall short of, but that's okay. So, so like I said, so, so we've been, uh, friends, we, we weren't um, tied at the hip uh, in graduate school and or after, but we kind of regularly communicate. Um, one of the n- nice things, I think, uh, about having, well, in academia at least, and I don't know if you, know, you could speak to this in industry as well, is that you can know someone pretty well and have known them throughout the years, and yet there's an endless supply of things to learn 
from that person. So there's like, uh, go, I can always go back to the well with you and find out um, something right. new, right? Um, which is a testament to human intelligence. What does intelligence mean to you? I think one thing that has struck me is intelligence and artificial intelligence more specifically. Um, a mm. lot of people don't like to define that. So I'm, I'm curious if, if people have ref refused to answer this on your, on your podcast or if you've asked others. Um, um, I mean, there, it's usually something about uh, being able to adapt in changing environments. Yeah. Um, and then there's often a um, generalization component yeah. tagged on. Um, that was, yeah. it would, I would exactly say it's very good generalization is what I would consider intelligence. But is that just a synonym or is that a definition, right? So generalization, right. what does that well, mean? Do, right. right. What's, what is, well, that's right. That's what I was going <laughs> right. to ask you. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so <laughs> I think it means, it means flexibility. It's things that look like creativity or novelty, right? You might be solving the same problem in an in a intelligent way. Or you may be solving a new problem. It could be an old problem or a new problem, but you might take a novel approach to it, right? Um, I think, I think how, how do people measure intelligence, right? They, they do things like test your ability to do analogies, right? I think an analogy is a form of generalization, right? You're applying mm -hmm. some, some, you know, features or attributes to, to a new condition. Um, abstraction is another way people measure intelligence, right? I think, analogy, abstraction, prediction, inference, all of those things that we do, intelligence is the ability that underlies, that enables us to do those things, right? So we can indirectly measure intelligence by someone's ability to do those things. Not to say that someone who can't make inferences or can't do analogies isn't intelligent. I don't want to say that, right? Like you may have never heard of an analogy, but you may have intelligence, which is the ability to do that if you understood what two colons and a dot here would mean, right? Um, so, so I think that's it. I think intelligence is that ability to generalize, and that leads to a whole bunch of capabilities. Can you articulate how your view of intelligence has changed throughout your career and and life? Because um, you know you've also worked on robotics, and and I, you know. Because my my own outlook is sort of you know constantly shifting, and I don't think I could articulate how I thought about it ten years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you can. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back to early graduate school reinforcement learning work, where I saw the agents I was I was training that, that I was working with. Well, they're training themselves, right, just to get reward. I saw behaviors that looked really intelligent sometimes, right? Sort of. Um, it looked like they had forethought. It looked like they were right. There, there were things that appeared to be intelligent. Um, and would I say they actually are intelligent? You know, in that in that context, with respect to their environment, yes, they seemed intelligent. Right? right? Okay. There's caveats. Um, there. There are caveats, yeah. right? So, so maybe intelligence is relative to your environment. Um, I think those were fairly simple. I think what I appreciate now is the sheer amount of computational power and architecture that would be required to make something intelligent with respect to the real world, right? To make something intelligent with respect to the real world will require a lot of compute power. And I did not really appreciate that. I, I think back then I thought you could just 
slap the reinforcement learning on a camera, you know, slap that robot onto a camera and it would just work, right? Um, and I think I'm, I'm now realizing that that's, uh, th- there's going to be a lot more to it than that. Well, you've worked on robotics. So uh, is that what gave you the, <laughs> the appreciation that, it, that it's beyond slapping the reinforcement learning and a camera on a robot? Yes, I, w- I would say quite, quite directly so. Um, I would say that that basically spending four years after my postdoc in a robotics company gave me a lot of that uh, appreciation and understanding of, of how hard of a problem it is to really solve well. But so, so I know that what you have done is taking your neuroscience knowledge um, from your years in academia and made the case, well, and incorporated that knowledge into the robotic systems that you guys were building and that, that you think that there are principles from the brain that are important, right, to um, incorporate. Um, I know, you know, like, for instance, you've worked on spiking neural networks um, throughout the years, actually. And yet, in a, in a conversation you, have, you and I have had previously, um, you know, you've said that we don't need to use everything in the brain, uh, and that there are some core principles that you think uh, that are needed to uh, implement uh, how many, <laughs> how many core principles uh, are there, and how do we actually discover those principles? Um, I think under so I think building brains, like building robotic brains, things basically devices that allow robots to navigate the world, successfully interact with it, right? You know, perceive and act. Um, building brains is a great way. Um, to discover those principles and, and sort of in the Feynman sense of what, what I cannot mm-hmm. build, I cannot understand, right? Just modeling is ultimately what we're talking about here. Once you try to build those things, even the, even the simplest robot that needs to be autonomous, then you start to think back to what, it, what was it about brains that seemed to be interesting, right? That that seemed like they would give them the capabilities to do this, right? And so I could hear echoes of our, our professors at Pitt, for example, right, in our program, um, saying things like, you know, one one said that Cortex is always predicting what's going to happen next, right? There was this mm-hmm. one thing that just echoed in my mind. And you realize that, okay, that, that sense of constantly predicting what happens next could be very valuable um, as a sort of computational driving force force for the things to learn good representations right so i think i think you have to be knowledgeable deeply about the neuroscience of what's going what's going on and so having done that coursework and having been exposed to what brains seem to be doing is helpful but also facing the problems and challenges and realizing that you know how are we going to design a system that's going to understand the world around it what we we can't use labels. This isn't a supervised learning problem. And to, re- to recognize, well, actually, using the future as the label for the present, or for example, right, or is, is a great way to drive the system to, you know, if the system is, is driven to do that and architected appropriately, you know, it could come up with certain things. So I think you have to have both, right? You have to have the neuroscience knowledge and the appreciation for what brains are doing. Should we talk about that? So you just mentioned some of the things that went into uh, a paper that um, you and other co-authors published, oh, six years ago now, I suppose, um, that used a an unsupervised and supervised uh, learning 
algorithm. Um, I, should we talk about that work just to kind of lay it on the table? We, we could we could do that. We could, yeah. Uh, because it's it's important to uh, be able to. So what you were just talking about, how you need to predict um, in an unsupervised way, you guys, and you can elaborate more on this. You guys built a system that would essentially predict the next time step, yeah. and then you made multiple hierarchical layers, and then you could track a green basketball uh, and look at stop signs uh, in various lighting conditions with various um, challenges visually. But it was a visual system. Uh, do I have? Is that an accurate description? And then, you know, what what was I missing there? That's highly accurate. There were situations where we'd see the visual systems of our robots fail on a very regular basis, and we were using sort of state of the art convolutional networks. We were using other computer vision algorithms, like using state of the art stuff. But we would, despite you know tremendous amounts of training or very clever parameter settings. Um, from one day to the next, the system might fail to track an object. And mm -hmm. that type of failure um, was uh, obviously disheartening for a lot of people in the, on the team and stuff. And, and, but coming up with understanding why that was the case was, was key. And so, under, so, so the fact that, you know, the color of an object. So our, our brains do tremendous amount of things for us. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Moravec's paradox. There's this paradox. I thought it was Moravec. Is Moravec, it yeah, Moravec. Yeah, uh, probably. Uh, okay, Mor I don't know. Moravec, yeah. 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 But right, the the idea is that it's very easy to make computers do very sophisticated things like chess, right? But we sort of ignore the things like what a one-year-old or two-year-old does, right? Just being mm -hmm. able to see an object on a table, right? Things like this. And those are so are, are those are also amazing things, but we just don't think of them as amazing. We just tend to think, oh, that was a green basket. That was a green basketball. Um, we didn't we didn't realize that we're constantly compensating for ambient lighting and colors and shadows and you know blurry effects and so so there's always a there's a lot of adaptation going on even at that perceptual level. Right, a lot mm -hmm. of intelligence, you might say, generalization going on even there, and so we tried to capture that using three principles from that we thought were brain-inspired principles. Right, this predicting the predicting the future, doing this very com compressed uh, representation at every part of the system, and having massive feedback throughout the system. Right, um, massive to even the input layer. So, but so the the architecture that you guys use is is similar to multiple other architectures. First of all, you mentioned convolutional neural networks, but at least in the paper, if I remember correctly, you're using kind of simple three-layer, multi-layer perceptrons, right? Correct. And then, okay, so there's that component. So you're using this quote-unquote simple MLP, but then you are taking, and, and the job of the final layer, the third layer, is to predict uh, the next time step incoming. Correct. But then, sort of like an Elman uh, recurrent neural network, you take output from the middle layer, the hidden layer, which is a smaller layer, so it's compressed, actually, yes. uh, which is like an autoencoder. Yes. But you take that compressed uh, representation and you feed it back to the earlier layers. So then I'm, I'm describing one little unit here, and I know it's That's more right. complicated than that. Okay. But then you had a bunch of units um, that comprised kind of a layer, and you put lateral uh, connections between those units. And then there were hierarchies, hierarchical levels of these little units, and they're all kind of connected together. That's right. 
Um, so there, so it's interesting that you, you, you used a lot of different similar, uh, architectures like a vanilla recurrent neural network, yep. uh, a vanilla multi-layer perceptron. Yep. And then what's now known is pr- you know, from principles of what is uh, an autoencoder. Yes. I, I would, I would actually call them, uh, the term we used was future encoders. So the, uh, right, because that, that was the key aspect that they had to predict the future. They couldn't just re-encode what, what was happening now. Right. So the, so an autoencoder's job is to regenerate the original data. Whereas in this case, the job of the MLP was to predict the next time step right. in an unsupervised fashion. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like it's almost self-supervised. Um, and the, the interesting thing too, is it might almost be called a hierarchy. I mean, yes, there is a certain order. So it is somewhat hierarchical, but because all of them can communicate with each other, right? All of them are trying to use not just their own past to predict what they, what they think would be coming next. They also use their neighboring, uh, their neighboring processing units to try to help them predict. So they essentially become sensitive, not just to their own input, but distant input, potentially through mm-hmm. multiple connections um, to, to better process. And the, why this is important um, is because if you have a scene and you're tracking and you're looking at an object, it can be very valuable to integrate information across the whole scene to interpret, say, the color of that object, right? So, for example, right. if there's a tree casting a shadow onto the object, you know, that tree may not even be in your field of view, but you might see this shadow kind of coming across the ground towards that and overlapping with that object. Um, the only hope you have of, of compensating for the shift in color of that object is to be aware of the shadow over there, right? Mm-hmm. And that needs to somehow impinge on the processing. So that was the, the impetus behind the architecture you've described uh, pretty quite accurately. So this is a little nitpicky. Um, and, you know, I haven't studied the paper that much in depth, but, you know, the brain is modular to some degree, right? Uh, it's not just uh, mass action. But the all of the units were kind of connected equally, right? Everyone got the same vote. It's um, so then you have this almost uh, homogeneous collection of these units, and it seems so. So of course the brain is highly, highly recurrent uh, at every you know place. But then some recurrence probably is stronger than others. Some counts more, and I, I suppose this is what happens when you train that network. Uh, that you trained, where some connections, of course, become more important than others. But it seems uh, like so many different inputs could actually overwhelm uh, the the system. Did you guys face any problems with uh, it's actually too much recurrent information? So I, I would say that this is a very, very fair point. I would say that this architecture that we presented is version one version 0.1 maybe right. you call it right right and right. there was come on tr- why isn't it why isn't it like a whole brain man <laughs> right. no 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 but i i think to, to your point is very fair um there was a little bit of exploration this i should say this was a one-year project it was a one-year project that was funded by darpa after which we had to end it um oh, and so okay. yeah so we we actually had to get outside funding in order to make this project happen um because it was sort of outside of, it was getting out of scope for our, our own company. So, so questions about how much recurrence and, and if there was a, if there should have been a gradient, like a neurodevelopmentally set up gradient of, of recurrence um, prior and would that have helped 
um, you know, qu quite potentially, I think a lot of exploration needs to be done with this type of architecture. Um, I would say, unfortunately, it's very hard to run this type of model, implement it in something like TensorFlow or PyTorch, one of the more common uh, because of it, the style of its recurrent connections, it's quite challenging to implement. Um, oh, okay. So that might not just not just because you'd have to hand uh, engineer the the different architectures, and they just they aren't built in as features in the in Python or TensorFlow. Right. It's not just that. Yeah, the libraries don't contain these. Um, although yeah. they probably, I think it would be a matter of connecting these units all all together would be a bit of a challenge. Um, um, one one other thing I would say is that despite you know us not having a tremendous amount of time to fine tune or optimize the architecture, the tr to get to your point of, of the training would be setting things up. One thing we did notice was that we had this large sort of data set of video, continuous video, and on which it was trained, and we were training it, and it just kept improving, always improving. Um, so mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of uh, deep networks. They 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 kind of saturate. You know, they need more data. They're very data hungry in the sense that they just need more data in order to get in, any improvements. This architecture didn't face that. Um, the longer we trained it, the better it got. It never was, you know, it never hit an asymptote. It, it or it never asymptoted. Right. It just kept getting better, um, which was fascinating to me. We would check it overnight. We'd check it the next day. It was trained it for weeks and. Uh, mm -hmm. Wouldn't that lead to perfection, though? And it, but, but it was still making errors. Right. It still wasn't perfect at predicting its own future, but it just kept getting better with the same data set, which was really... Uh, I, I'm not even sure what the implications of that are, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Just like you and me, we just keep getting better and better. That's yes. what the implication is. <laughs> well, I, I hadn't thought of this, but um, was that... So I guess you started working on that probably in 2014 or 2015 or something. Right. And these days, uh, it's all about unsupervised learning. You know, when you uh, you hear like Jan LeCun talk about the future is, is self-supervised slash unsupervised learning. Were you guys ahead of the curve there? Not that unsupervised learning hasn't always been around, but uh, it just hasn't been as popular because uh, supervised learning was such a success for those uh, few years after 2012. I mean, I, I, it's, I think we were, yeah, perhaps we were ahead of the curve. I think it was definitely a different path. We were definitely on a different path um, from, from what most people were on to because of the problems we were facing or mm -hmm. the problems we chose. The, the fact that we chose to recognize the problem as one of not, you need more data, right? That, the majority right. of the field just said, well, you just need more training data. They're still saying that to some extent today. Whereas we realized it's not about more data, it's about having a architecture, right? The algorithm that is suited for the problem you're trying to solve, right? It has to be suitable. You also, this is kind of switching topics here, but thinking about modern networks and the continued rise of um, expansion of these of deep learning models, et cetera, um, I know that you you have interest in language, at least you know you, you did back in uh, in graduate school. Um, wh what are your thoughts on these recent transformers, the, these language models? That's not something that that we talk about much on the podcast. Um, I have a few kind of ep episodes kind of geared up um, to talk about them more. But uh, how do you view? Well, I mean, I, there's I know there's a, bu a bunch of different language models, but how do you view like the transformer kinds of models? Transformers to me are, are very interesting. 
I view them as a formalism, formalization perhaps is the word, of what recurrent networks do, um, but in a way that makes them suitable for GPU acceleration and, and more precision, right? Less, less of the, the vanishing gradient due to time, right? They, they're able to go back and, right, instead of hoping that the recurrent system learns to preserve the meaningful information to make the decision at the end, right? Instead of just hoping that that sort of churning process preserves what you need, the transformer architecture makes it more explicit and says, if you if this information is beneficial for your output at this time, you can actually go and get it. You can retrieve it from that moment in your history, right? And so to me, that's a really clever design. And, a, and in my hands, using them on a few problems, transformers have been very, very successful. They've worked very well. Um, of course, I'm using much smaller transformers than these big language models and, and you know smaller data sets, but... Um, but they're very useful tool. Mm-hmm. So you use the term formalism uh, to describe what was happening with transformers. And I, that immediately made me think of the word syntax. Um, mm-hmm. And, but it, are semantics still missing? And I, I'm really naive about uh, language models these days, but you know, there's always the problem of meaning and semantics, right? So is it all syntax or, uh, or are there semantics? Or is, is there meaning in there? <laughs> right. So I, I, I think GPT-3 or, or these large language models, um, they are expensive toys, I think. They're expensive toys, um, fun, but maybe not of very much use, in my opinion. Mm. Use for what? Use for, for any... So I think people have been interested in, in using them in various domains, helping them analyze, summarize text, oh. for example, right? right. Things like this. Um or using them in the context of a uh, customer service system or an education system for kids or, you know, things like this. I, I think that they don't know what they're talking about. Right. And that's why you see, you can always cherry pick great looking examples, but you can also see very bad failures of, of, right. of these things. And um, it's not that hard to get bad failures. Uh, some people make it a, a, ha- a hobby to just right. show how yeah. they fail. Aggravators. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think yes. What is what is missing is the intelligence, right? The the correct good generalization, and probably the way to do it is is so. So I used to believe that you could learn language by listening to the radio. You could learn a language by listening to the radio, right? That was, okay. you know, the old idea that just by looking at strings of, of language, taking it, you in. Could, yeah. taking it in, right? You should be able to figure out what it is. And then eventually I realized, you know, you might not, um, you might not be able to do it until you actually, so, so suppose the language is a stream about a coffee shop right? About mm-hmm. activity in the coffee shop. There's a barista, people ordering things, you know, you're getting served things. Maybe you even have the audio of what's happening, some stirring sounds, some pouring sounds, right? Um, I, I think I, actually to, to the point, I think stirring sounds and pouring sounds or seeing what's going on is what helps you really be sure of the meaning, right? Until you, you, until you get that real world input that accompanies the language string, uh, stream, you might always be a bit unsure about what you know what they're really talking about well i thought you were gonna i thought you're gonna go action that you have to speak you have to generate right i i'm not i'm not necessarily 
ready to jump there yet to say okay. that you would have to. But I, I would think you could sit in the coffee shop. If you sat in the coffee shop, that's much better than just hearing the language stream about what's going on in the coffee shop. You forgot uh, Sarah McLaughlin playing uh, in the background as well. Exactly. If you're in a coffee shop, that's probably that's a little outdated. But I've seen her. I've seen her perform twice. Uh, oh, live! I didn't know you're yeah. a fan oh, of Sarah fantastic. McLaughlin. Is it? Are, are you a fan? I, I actually am a fan. But yeah, it's funny. Yeah, we can yeah. edit that I out. That's okay. Through my wife, I learned about. Yeah, that's right. oh, okay. I learned about her through my wife, and uh, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know she was still going. Um, yeah. Anyway, there are people like Chris Manning uh, and others who are analyzing this. You know, the properties of these language models and finding. Um, for lack of a better term, human-like uh, structure. So the, the question is, are they teaching us anything about our own intelligence, right? Can, and, and this goes back to the, your, your model that we talked about also, did, you know, using that AI uh, approach, are those, you can answer it for both, right? So uh, do, do transformers and modern language models have anything to teach us about our own intelligence? Great question. I think you could certainly, if you have a model that does something and you look inside and you find certain patterns of activation, perhaps I could say it's, it's likely you will find those patterns in, in the brain as well, right? Um, or, or there's multiple ways to skin a cat, multiple realizability, right? It might not. Uh, right. So it's not to say it is, yeah, it's not to say it is the way that this is solved, right? But it's a way it may be solved. And I think the brain does things a diverse, diverse manner of ways, right? There's no, I don't think there are single mechanisms to achieve something. There are probably multiple mechanisms to achieve something, right? And so perhaps, you know, you might look at what a transformer is doing and you might say, oh, you know, I found something in Wernicke's area that's similar or some higher, you know, some higher language level area that's, that's similar. So I think you know, is that interesting? Perhaps it is. Um, I, I guess what's perhaps more interesting is understanding where those models fail mm -hmm. and where brains succeed and trying to get insight there. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so maybe that's, that's all I can say is just, it's just, you can always look in the model and then see, find something in the brain that's like it. I just don't know if that really, how helpful is that? I don't know how helpful that is. So, in but your question of to what extent can AI research or machine learning research inform us about brains? I think it can really help us understand the challenges and the problems brains face. Ah, right? it, it can make those very clear. Um, right? I was going to ask you how, how you thought thus far how AI has most contributed to helping us understand our own intelligence. And is that the, is that your answer that um, the challenges? That that would be the yeah you know, that would be my answer that that they help us know what they help us reflect back on ourselves and wow what can you know what can humans or animals actually do mm -hmm. and why is it so hard for these machines to do it right like that is super valuable in my in my opinion let's reverse that I've had this recurring thought lately and it's I know it's not an original thought but uh, when we think of building AGI or human level uh, intelligence, we often, well, I assume that we often mean a system that uh, doesn't make any mistakes. And yet humans, we have so many follies. We're so imperfect. Um, can we, <laughs> how do you think about that? Think, well, do you agree with that, first of all, because the picture of 
uh, perfection, right? An AI that's perfect. Well, now it's human level. Well, no, because humans are way imperfect, right? So can we use our own follies to help inform uh, AI as well? Yes, probably. I, I, I think that's really insightful way to think about it. Um, because when one talks about AGI, not that we need to, I don't know what that means either, but yeah, let's say human level performance, right? Like, or or exceeding human level performance, right? Um, You know, is right. Is human level performance the goal or is it just human like performance? That's the goal, right? That's one thing. Um, And I'm thinking of these, uh, these claims of uh, radiology, radiology, right? scanning things right where they exceed human level performance they, right they see a tumor well where a human can't see a tumor is that what you're where right. they diagnose better than a human would right right exactly exactly i think that's you know that's really impressive of course there are some humans that will probably be able to do that and there's the term idiot savant i don't know if there's a more politically correct term for it now probably right? but there, these days yeah there must be <laughs> something but the there are always people who can do things, they're outliers, right? Who can do things amazingly well. Mm-hmm. And I view a lot of these machine learning systems as kind of maybe be- becoming like those types of, of uh, you know, outlying outlier people where you've got it's some, probably, you probably just drop idiot and just, I think we just say savant now. Maybe just that's say the savant, more politi- that I, maybe <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Savant, savant would be like a wise person, you know, someone who's, Oh, an idiot savant would be a very specialized person. Right? Very special, right? Exactly. Right. Okay, but but so we're going to get so, in trouble right, for so, this. Yeah. yeah, I know. We'll have to figure out what to yeah. do. But okay, <laughs> but right. So I, I, so do do does human level performance matter? Does exceeding or approaching human level performance matter, or do we just want human like performance? Right, where you know it may not, it may be prone to error but it still recovers really well, right? You know, like people make mistakes all the time, but they can recover very quickly. Um, so take take the self-driving cars and crashing into a, a, a police car with sirens or a, 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 a fire engine, right? Parked fire engine with siren lights going on, right? Humans don't crash into those things, right? Uh, so who cares about your level of performance? It, I think the goal is to get something that makes the kinds of errors perhaps or or doesn't or recovers from the kinds of errors in a way that a human might right yeah but so the car example is a good example right because the whole point of having self-driving cars is that it would not make the same sort of dumb errors that humans make and contribute to fatalities um and and the danger of driving right well, so so I, in actually, that sense is that is that is that it is that really i isn't that one reason what was the, what would be the other reason traffic flow <laughs> right maybe traffic flow or you know you can just gain a bit of a few hours in your day right but, but we so would but, I, but but we would consider it a failure right if self-driving cars came along and we had the same fatality rate as before self-driving cars wouldn't that be a failure of the ai hmm, i don't know i i don't know I, I and also i think that if the errors were human-like Maybe that would be, you know, if you get to explainability of AI, right, and people right. understand why things fail, right? Because, I, you know, if, if you're crashing into a, into a parked police car or something like this, like, I think that sends sort of shocks of terror throughout 
people who are looking at this technology, right? Yeah. Because it's a failure. They can't understand how that failure happened. Um, so in terms of just trusting the system, now, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people trust the system now, right, to, for self-driving. I, I, I would not, obviously, knowing what I know, I wouldn't do it. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I don't know. It's, it's totally a good question. I don't know where, where people sit on their acceptance of, of, of that and what they're expecting. A human-level performance sounds great, but is that really what we should be looking for? What would you imagine, and I can tell you kind of what I would imagine, to like you would, how would you feel or what would you need to see to think something is, oh, that's real AI? Right. Real AI. Yeah. Great whatever question. The, whatever the fuck that is. But, <laughs> yeah, that's right. but so I, I'll give you mine. Yeah. And then, uh, okay. well, there are a couple like criteria, I think, for now. And, if, you know, ask me next week and it'll, I'll have a different answer or no answer. One of the things is, so you mentioned autonomy earlier. Uh, one of the things about autonomy is that I am autonomous for myself. And I, you know, my, my care for you, Patrick, is limited, right? And it's probably on some level uh, related to how much gain you can provide for me, right? So no offense taken. No offense no, yeah, taken. <laughs> I don't care. That, that's a thing. So I don't care about you, Patrick, right? So what? AI has to not, like real quote unquote AI has to not care about us um, for one thing. And the other criteria that I've recently been thinking of is I just don't think that we would be able to understand. So there, here's a thing. Uh, it doesn't care about us. It kind of disregards us unless it really needs us, but I don't know why it would need us. And then the other thing is I don't think we would be able to understand why it was doing whatever it was doing, let alone understand what it was doing. Does that sound ridiculous? It doesn't. It doesn't sound ridiculous. I, I think one has to consider what is the imperative for that AI system. Yeah. Right. What is it? What is its sort of fundamental design or programming? Right. Because there, there are things, you know, I guess instincts, you might say, or very low level drives, right. That are in all of us. Right. And um, you could imagine that those drives might not exist in an AI system, if say the resources it needs are super plentiful, for example, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to worry about getting energy for itself, let's say. And so, um, so maybe it doesn't have to, you know, worry about that. Maybe it doesn't have to have wars over that energy, things like that, right? Say they're right. solar powered. Let's go, let's go matrix, right? Okay. Um, San Diego, that's a very San Diego thing to say. Totally but... San Diego, right? Yeah. So, um, so, so, this again goes to the fact that uh, artificial intelligence systems don't necessarily, they may not necessarily end up being human-like, right? They might become very specialized. It's just, can they generalize? That is the, is the question. Well, yeah. can I just interject? Because I think that there are kind of two visions, right? So um, stemming from the question, well, you know, what do you want AI for? And And one vision is that we'll have all these like very specialized AI robots doing specialized things, but maybe generalize well. Uh, but the... And, and maybe these two things are related. The other vision is that we're going to build AI uh, to be like the most intelligent thing in the universe, us, and that they're like their intelligence, th therefore, will resemble the most intelligent thing in the universe, us. And I, I guess it depends on what you want the AI for. And I tend to think that uh, the first 
the former is is where we should go, right? Where we're going to have like a bunch of like specialized things serving our needs, of course. And this is again not an original thought. Uh, agreed. I, I think, right? I think the first one is probably much more realistic, um, and I think less conceited, right? So obviously, but right, you know, imagine imagine agricultural robots where essentially food needs are are satisfied, right? I, I can tell you from working with robots that they are constantly breaking down. Um, mm, yeah. So I think an important part of this for me would be that the robots would have to be intelligent enough to repair themselves, self-repair, which I yeah. think would be a huge, um, a huge measure of intelligence and autonomy, right? Not only can it autonomously navigate, but it can autonomously maintain itself or has a symbiotic relationship with other robots that can do the repairs or something, right? Like, yeah. um, so having robots that can construct and, and repair themselves is, would be a huge, huge challenge to, to, because of the mechanics, quite literally speaking. But that would lead to that autonomous type intelligence. So I think, I think that's probably where we would want to go in terms of you know, robots that can assist us in, in doing, doing things or, or saving time or things like that, right? Um, hopefully without endangering lives of people, you know, if that could be avoided. Let's switch gears. And uh, so I'm always asking, you know, how can the brain better inform AI? And you've been on both sides of the coin, really, um, on the, I keep referring to it as industry, but I know that your industry experience was closely related to um, sort of academic pursuits as well. But anyway, what, what do you see as uh, that that's missing in AI, and it doesn't have to be one thing, uh, where you think that neuroscientific research uh, could inform AI? I think that there are a lot of sort of theoretical, there's a lot of neuroscience theory, a lot of theoretical neuroscience concepts that could inform AI. There are things that we know about the brain and what the brain does that have yet to be leisure, lever, uh, leveraged. Mm-hmm. Did you have theoretical ideas in mind or, or we, we could take some examples like, so just for example, let's take the, the first one, which is spiking networks. Right. And mm-hmm. you know, why does that matter? Right. Why should spiking be important? Cause I think we, we talked about this a bit last time, right. That people claim it's energy efficient or something. And so mm-hmm. that that's, you know, an important reason to adopt it. But I, I don't know if that's the most interesting thing about spiking. Um, or the most relevant thing, and you can always make circuits energy efficient if you need to. Um, if you think about the most neural networks right now, they use vector representations, right? Vectors where you know each element, you know, maybe represents the average firing rate of a neuron or a set of neurons, right? That's mm-hmm. the analogy that people have used for decades now. Um, and a vector has a direction and a magnitude. That's it, pretty much, right? You're, you're pointing somewhere and you have a magnitude of how, how much you're pointing there. So it's very, I think, impoverished uh, compared to what a spiking code could do, a spiking representation does. Um, so by spiking, I guess I would say it's like asynchronous, it's temporal, it's it has some ordering to it, it has some percentage population activity, right? All of these things, right? So a spiking, a spiking pattern can be synchronous. It can be asynchronous. It could be in sequence. It could be randomized. Um, it could be play quickly. It could play slowly. 
um, and it could ramp up in its activity level, right? It could still be the same population code, mm-hmm. but it might ramp up or ramp down and the, the rate at which it ramps up, you know, percentage wise could be. So there's a rich, there's a very rich amount of encoding and representation and processing in a spiking system that's just not used right now, right? And all of these different properties I talked about, I was just thinking in mind, like you're, these are all with respect to a particular percept, let's say, right? So I like to think, was this percept surprising or was it anticipated, mm. right? Does it need to engender action immediately or does it need to engender reserved, you know, res- non-action, right? Um, does it require orienting to it to find out more or is it just a prediction of a percept? We don't actually see it, right? Spiking codes could very naturally uh, express all these things. And if you look at current networks, right, they don't really have, when you look at errors in a perceptual, in, in a visual network, you know, these adversarial errors or things like that, I think having that spiking representation to encode uncertainty or, you know, robustness essentially is, yeah. It, right, right, exactly. So, um, so I, I, I think one thing that's missing, but there are other concepts, right? Like sleep, the concept of sleep. Or- oh, I was going to ask you about this because I, I, I've been asked about sleep recently too. There, I mean, inter- sorry that I interrupted you, but um, no. I guess the most recent thing that I've seen on sleep, uh, trying to incorporate principles from sleep into yeah. networks, uh, is a spiking neural network where they they found that um, if they injected like sinusoidal noise that's supposed to mimic sleep and i don't know how that is actually supposed to mimic sleep you know the the uh, headlines were all ai needs sleep too but then you know and this thing is just sinusoidal noise right um that that helped the the network generalize but then the you know of course reap the the idea of replay uh has been used multiple times and in fact that's what helped uh the deep mind dqn algorithm learn the atari games and now replay is just ubiquitously used but that's something that happens when we're uh wake awake and restful uh as well but uh, we don't understand the function of sleep well enough, do we, to start taking inspiration from that and building it in? Right. I mean, I think this sinusoidal thing sounds really interesting. I'm going to look into it. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link. You know, taking it back to so the, the original wake-sleep algorithm, right? Remember from uh, pre-deep learning, yeah. w- basically there was a forward pass where the recognition weights get tra- gets trained. And then there's a backwards pass, a generative pass, and it trains like that. That has nothing to do with sleep, right? But it was quote unquote inspired by sleep. So I think that there are just miss, I think there are clever advertisers who might use the term sleep, but I th- I just think we need to understand a lot more about what's happening during sleep before we start claiming yeah. that these, that these are sleep related uh, algorithms that are being used perhaps. I think that's a very fair point. That's a very fair point. Um, I think, I think there are there are other concepts that are perhaps a bit better understood, like the prediction over time, like you, you know prediction and mismatch of prediction. Um, that would be you know those are more tangible things that could be implemented, as as we did in a little bit of in that paper. You know, I think it, it was definitely not just advertisement there. We were like definitely inspired by that pretty strongly, although it's not a spiking network as you, as you did uh, note, right? Um, and uh, or, or the fact that there's, it, perhaps it's more behavioral than anything else, but the fact that you need to take time to 
to perceive or to act, right? Take, you know, taking a certain types of decisions or actions take a bit of bit more time than others. Mm. These types of things, um, you know, aren't really used either. Right. Um, and of like course, long, it long-term you, planning for like, so like long, uh, to graduate college or something like that when you're in high or, school, something like that. Right. You have to, you know, you have to take 50 million steps to get there, but you don't encode all the steps. Is that what you're alluding per, to? That's perhaps, or maybe even shorter term than that. Right. Like certain, even perceptual decisions take a bit of time to answer. Right. Whereas a lot of these systems, we, we show them an image or a frame and we expect them to, answer fairly immediately right? right right so you don't have to do that right you can actually run networks so they accumulate information over time and then periodically do an output you just don't do that very often right we tend to so reframing problems to be less about image perception and more about perceiving things in in video and continuous video streams right might might make a big difference but since that's kind of what we do right and and so it'd be interesting to see if that improves things um I've also wondered a lot about, you know, the fact that we make saccades all over the place when right. scanning a scene and, you know, as opposed to just taking in a whole image. Um, and, you know, could there be some benefits of that for perception? You know, not to say that we need to mimic mimic humans or animals, right? right? We don't, but, but maybe there's benefits that we haven't quite recognized. So, I mean, there are convolutional systems, right, that are designed to look across images and and mimic saccades in some way and then kind of piece it together over time. Okay, so let's reverse this. <laughs> uh, what what can we put in the bin to safely ignore? Uh, astrocytes? Can we safely ignore astrocytes? Ooh, I don't know if we can. I've been, I've been uh, in communication with a, an astrocyte fan who, who has this idea that astrocytes are really the seat of um, like a subjective awareness and really higher cognitive functions, right? But the whole history of neuroscience has said, ignore, ignore. So maybe AI should too. Are there other things that, um, I won't, well, I won't uh, pin you down on astrocytes, but I'll, I'll leave it open uh, if there are yeah. things that you, you think we could safely ignore. It, it is hard to answer that question, right? It's, I think, right, you always, so minimal, a minimalist approach does say, let's try to only use uh, the ingredients or principles, like a, a small set of them to see what functionality we get out of them, right? The minimal, so minimal set, right? Minimal set, right? To yeah. see what, what you can get out. And so I, I, I think the minimal, that is interesting way to go forward, but I think it's, it's hard to rule out any one of those items, right? As, so if you're going to take, <clears throat> if you're going to build your model around astrocytes what else would would be relevant and included in that minimal set would you have to have you know neurotran different neurotransmitter types right would you need to right separate out your glutamate from your dopamine and but now you're talking right. beyond what current ai uses also right because they're just point processes so like i just i just had randy gallistel on uh the podcast recently and he has been arguing for <laughs> Uh, 50 years now that um, we, there needs to be some sort of intracellular uh, mechanism for memory, something to read from and write to, right? And yes. of course, you have, um, you have uh, deep learning architectures where there is an external memory, but that's, that's different. So, you know, his, he didn't say this, but I should have asked him, you know, do you think that in artificial networks, he's not interested in AI at all, but right, do you think right. in artificial networks, does that mean that we have to build in a little read-write memory into each unit? 
you know, if someone came to you with that idea, would you roll your eyes? There are all these things where there are still open questions in neuroscience where you think, well, I don't, we don't even have the answer to that. How, how would we know whether it, we should build it in, et cetera? Right. No, I, you know, I think pragmatically speaking, you know, if there was a way to, and, and there are, there are some really interesting. So, okay. I must say the LSTM, for example, right. Okay. It does have some interesting little internal memory system. There are some more interesting ones that have, um, well, I would say more powerful, I guess, that have explicit, um, little almost Turing machines, right? Like little read, write yeah. memories. And yeah. they're kind of linked in with that gradient descent process. So they do learn to move bits of when they need around to. those memories. Yeah. yeah. When they need to. And so it's certainly a complex thing to add in, but, and, but could it help? And if it's, if it's valid, it's probably worth exploring, right? Um, what's the computational cost of doing it, um, of implementing these things and what's the benefit, right? So just pragmatically speaking, right? If you really care about getting something working and this can demonstrably show it, you know, I think that's, that's good to your point about transformers earlier, right? Um, if, you know, if the transformer could do what our, you know, our hierarchical, you know, hierarchical system was doing better pragmatically and give our robots better visual capabilities. Absolutely. Right. Um, similarly, you know, we could have gone the other way and said that if spiking were somehow better for, you know, we, we would go in that direction. Right. So, so I was putting that on a, on a spectrum, right. Of mm-hmm. transformers being like maybe a bit more removed from biology than that model. And then spiking as closer to biology than that model. Right. Um, you know, we, we sort of just, chose to ignore a lot of stuff just for the purpose of getting a minimal design to to to, un- to work with and understand and learn from right here's another way to ask the question do do you think all things being equal and not that they ever are is it more important to think to use inspiration from low level brain processes you know like spiking for instance or higher level uh cognitive sciencey type uh behavioral processes like the way that humans do things and just build it that way more top down that way or is it more important to focus on sort of bottom up processes and you can't cheat and say both right <laughs> um i love asking you these impossible questions this is why i so, wanted to have you on too because it's just fun these are really me. good these are really really good um maybe the problem is you're a careful yeah. thinker, and so you, you what you what you need to be knee jerk like everybody like uh, many uh, like the majority right and say this is the way. <laughs> well, I, I guess what if we put it as the low level stuff? So I think human behavior is great. Human error is also great to learn from, right? Mm-hmm. It, how about is it is using both this way? the low level stuff in, you know, qualified by the behavior, right? So, right, you're... That's you're, both. That's that answer. That's the both, both answer. But it sort of, there, there's a, somewhat of a direction. I'll accept that. Uh, Ding! Uh, I'll accept it. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, right. Are, are there things that you have been thinking about besides sailing uh, recently that you've, you've kind of been struggling to wrap your head around? Hmm... A, pr- a problem you'd like to tackle that's just beyond your uh, expertise or domain? I, I mean, I, I certainly have been wondering about how to, how I would move that research direction that we started those, you know, six years ago or whatever, how I might move that forward in a, in mm-hmm. a, in a good, a practical way, right? Something where it's not a 
a massive towering computer sitting next to a tiny robot, right, to, to make something happen and also to, to take into account more about, you know, the robot's own actions. So I think there's a whole, like, research program that would be neat to to plan out and figure out. Um, I don't really know how it would move forward, though, at this point. So If, if someone offered you a faculty position, a full lab, well-funded, at an academic institution at this point, would you accept? Would you start your own lab if you given the opportunity? Just not sure I would do it at an academic institution. But it's it's but it's easier to do your own research at an academic institution, no? I mean, otherwise you have to convince a funding agency. Well, you have to do that at an ac- academic institution. What about let's see a tenured position, right? right. <laughs> Where there that well that's that, that's not fair. That's cheating because it's not a real uh, lab situation. But so so you would rather start your own company and work on these things? I, I think so. I think so. I, I think there's something important about what I what I learned and what really drives me is the importance of what you're developing working right what matters is that it's working and that it help it's helpful and beneficial and I think that if that's what you're working on yes it does take more work to get it out there and and so but I, I think that's maybe the diff- the term academic in colloquial speech, right? If mm-hmm. something is academic, it means it doesn't have that utility. It's pointless necessarily, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, it's academic. Right? That's how people say, it. I, "Oh, yeah. that's you know, he, well, he's very academic, right?" No, so I think insult. that's maybe yeah. right. But that's maybe where I'm going at, right? So okay, if there were, it doesn't. I guess it doesn't matter if I were in a faculty position or not, right? That doesn't really matter. Unless somehow the faculty position had a huge number of responsibilities that would detract me from right, right, doing teaching, right, that, yeah, administrative. That might yeah. be part of the issue, right? And that's why. I, that's why I didn't say if you were hired to be, if you were offered a chair position or something, because that's a right. no, isn't it? Right. <laughs> Probably that's yeah. not core to my interests, right? At this stage, <laughs> maybe in the future, but right, that kind of thing isn't core to my interests. Um, I also not sure I want to train graduate students. Uh, you know, either because you're autonomous and, and you don't care about people like me, etc. That's <laughs> not the case. I'm, I'm happy to adv- I'm happy to advise them uh, from afar <laughs> for a lot of uh, money, so you can solve problems. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, great, I, yeah. I've had great convers- great conversations with people <laughs> yeah. uh, that I advise. It's 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 great actually, and, I, and uh, teaching is something I also really appreciate. I, I love, uh, you know, it's been over Zoom, but having calls with with people I know who, you know, maybe they already have their PhD or whatever, but just, just having conversations and, and potentially even working on a little project. Um, it's, 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 you know, I do seriously take, I think on our degrees, it says something about the responsibilities as well that came with our degrees or PhDs. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think right. teaching is a big part of those responsibilities. And so I definitely appreciate being able to do that occasionally um, too, but well, the, it also said there was also like when we were in graduate school, the slogan was from bench top to bedside, right? And that's a very problem solving wow. practical thing that I just dust, you know, shooed away. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. From bed, bed, bench top to bedside. Yes, that's what we're doing. That's, that's, true. But, that's true. So yeah, no, I think it's just about mindset. It, wherever it, it's just about mindset, whatever position, right? Is I think you could do it in industry, you could do it in academia and 
you know, there, there are hybrid things that are popping up now too, which there are sure are. between, yeah. right? And yeah, so that's exciting. It's very exciting. So yeah, any, any place is good as long as you can do what, what, what you think is important, right? Given your comb shape, uh, if you had to look back, right, thinking and starting from, I don't know when, the, when you consider your beginning, quote unquote, but let's go back. Well, you can choose. If you would take a different trajectory, if you would do anything differently uh, in, in your earlier career, looking back. Um, right. I, I don't think I would change anything. I mean, that certainly the path was not certain. It didn't feel very certain as I was going along the path. But given where I am now looking back, yeah, I wouldn't change anything because I think the, where I've arrived is a very, it's, it's an interesting point, right? So could I have gotten here faster if I had stayed true to my interests uh, mm. and really pursued them? Possibly. But then you wouldn't have learned nearly as much. If someone stays true just to their interests, doesn't that make them more eye-shaped? It, it might. It might have. And I think that, and I, I think I might not have arrived where I am today if I had, if I had forced that. Yeah. So do you, do you feel like you've made, because often people give the advice you have to step out of your comfort zone. Do you feel like you've done that over and over or has it been always kind of a small step and you you've been kind of comfortable in your role or have you made that a point to step out of your comfort zone and, or have you felt like you actually have? Good question. I think I have stepped out of my comfort zone, but with gusto, I think, with with interest in in that, right? So, so you're comfortable because you're interested. I you all have you've always seemed comfortable to me in whatever situation you're in, and that's also something that I uh, have admired from afar. I suppose this is the first time I'm telling you that, but well, honored. I, I wish I were comfortable in in, in the situations uh, yeah. as comfortable as I appear to be. I think. Yeah, no, I think there is, is, yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's challenging to go into new environments and solve new problems, right? But I think it's also very, very interesting. And so I guess it's just the outlook of if there's an interesting problem, if you're willing to learn and if you're, if you can be comfortable with not knowing all the answers and ideally you're in an environment that's supportive of that, that's the best, that's the best thing, I think, uh, to, to mm. find that. Um, but it is, it's, it is hard to find, I think. Um, but, um, is there anything that you wish you knew earlier on that you felt like if I'd only known this or had this X skill, it would have, uh, tenfolded my, uh, progress, my rate of progress. This is a, there's a related question. I know you're thinking, and I'm sorry to interrupt your thinking, but a related question I was going to ask you is, so you had software development essentially before software development was required in neuroscience, right? So coding skills, for instance. And, you know, I, it wasn't required when I started graduate school. I had to learn coding in graduate school. But now it seems um, it seems to be a requirement. Uh, is, is coding slash software development, I know that those are different things, but is that computer side of things the most important thing to, the most important skill to have uh, or to learn for what I'm calling neuro AI, computational neuroscience, the study of intelligence? Yeah. Po possibly. Um, well, I think it is important 
to, to be able to write software. I think it, it, it is a help, tremendously helpful, tremendously helpful. Um, I would, uh, if someone, it, I guess I would highly recommend learning something other than just Python, um, <laughs> if possible. MATLAB. Well. MATLAB. Maybe, no, okay, no. Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. After 10 years, I still don't like Python. Um, oh, still writing it. It's just not, That's the not standard great. now. It's, it is. It's terrible. But anyway. Okay. Um, I, I think another thing that would be interesting, like if something that would have been beneficial, well, it's, it's hard to know, right? So I've always, you know, FPGAs, the sort of developing things on in digital. Mm -hmm. So there's a way of essentially re chips that can be reprogrammed, reprogrammable microchips. Um, okay. And that's the one thing I don't quite have yet. I've done barely the basics on it. And I feel like that would be tremendously helpful to have moving forward. But, but again, for I, robotics? I can't, uh, for, yeah, for robotics or for research purposes, for, you know, okay. building perceptual systems, understanding how to translate software ideas into hardware, uh, is, is something that, but, but I can't say, you know, having known that, would that have changed my path at all? Right. Would that have allowed me to be a 10 X, you know, potentially, right? Uh, actually, I think, uh, on Wall Street, uh, traders are using FPGAs to have really fast uh, trading algorithms, right? So that is a case where they are getting a 10x benefit of that. Could I have somehow gotten a 10x benefit on something? I'm not sure um, if it would have been anything I had ended up doing or not, right? Um, but, I, okay, I think one of the most important things for neuroAI, though, is to overcome that introspection bias, uh, where, like, you... you, you you're, you think that things work a certain way because you think that's how they work in your, in your brain. Sort of, I think people come up with theories about how their own mind works and, mm -hmm. right. So rather than being driven by sort of the scientific research and, and findings, they, they're driven by how they think things work. And I think, you know, the reason that things like chess and go and all these, uh, video games, right. People view these, oh, these are human activities or even yeah. logic, right. Well, these are, quintessential yeah. intelligent human behaviors right and they're not really right well going going back to gofi going back to good old-fashioned symbolic ai i mean that uh -huh. was you know you, they would videotape people playing chess and look at the behavior right so that's right. always been kind of the uh intuitive introspective although i guess that's a an attempt to be uh objective about it but they're still relying on you know this oh, chess is the way to go to, right yeah so chess is the way to go right it's sort of a, maybe it's a bit of an ivory tower concept as well right that <laughs> just you know look outside of that for you know the the real problem right what, what is the actual problem that that we would like to solve isn't that the hardest thing to do though because we are all as scientists inundated with our own biases and this is a known awful problem that's what we need to develop ai for is to uh, remind us how biased we are and to uh to generate alternative hypotheses <laughs> i think that's key that's exactly mm. key yeah there's all this concern about bias in ai but you're right there's bias there's, in us well, that's, and, i know right yes. we don't, so that's the thing we're trying to get rid of in ai but we we're perfect and we have bias so put it in that's right <laughs> we're, you know, we're yeah, putting it in this no, that's yeah. exactly right. That's it should it should help us by working on these. We should we should they, yeah, it should be very helpful as a exercise and as an end product to build these uh, AI systems. Patrick, this has been super fun for me. Uh, I you know usually when I have a guest on, it's the first time I've met 
them or have I met them, you know, once or twice before. Uh, you, I've, I've met, met uh, multiple times uh, over the, over the years, and yes. I look forward to continue meeting you over and over and 10xing my own knowledge base by asking you questions. This has been really fun. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Great to chat and looking forward to it the next time. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.